thanks so much for coming, man. It was so nice to see you again. Um, I always enjoy talking to you, and and I think people want to hear your story. Um, obviously, you're most famous for Vega, um, but I want to hear about what you're doing lately and and SFU. But I think it would be great if we started with the beginning of how you started as this high performance athlete that was looking for <laughs> <laughs> wrong guy. Yeah, wrong guy. Is weather podcast? Yeah, <laughs> I need competitive advantage. Um, no, how did it start for you? What's your uh, entrepreneurial journey? Yeah, I um actually I, I was born in Taiwan in 1970. I know I'm going way back here, yeah. but it makes sense. Um, immigrant uh, child came to to the US, to the U.S. when I was like three years old. My dad went to grad school in California. We lived on res for a couple of years. Graduated. My dad graduated, and uh, they didn't want us. So we're like, okay, uh, what's the closest place we can go that we can uh, immigrate to? Because my dad can't go back to Taiwan. He'll get you know, politically persecuted. He's a shit disturber. Yeah. A political activist. And the closest was Vancouver. So literally right. came to Vancouver with 500 bucks in our, in our jeans and a, an old Volkswagen bug. And wow. uh, on the first night, we stayed in this unfurnished, uh, unfinished basement. I ate rat poison and almost died. No way. How old uh, were you? I was at the time five years old. No way. Uh, and literally, that was Welcome to Canada, first day in Canada. And uh, you found a white cookie in the corner. And, uh, well, it was like sugary, you know, and yeah. it was hungry um, <laughs> after being, you know, on the road for whatever, a week. Holy. But yeah, it was it was very stark. My, my parents worked every kind of job. They're the real entrepreneurs yeah. in our family, you know, they worked every kind of job below their education uh, level um, to make, you know, ends meet for us. We were able to buy a house within six years of arriving in Canada. Mm. 50,000 bucks for a house in East Vancouver, you know, like that's what they were able to save and do. That's amazing. Uh, you know, very highly educated people that had to get it on their hands, needs to get their hands dirty, cleaning, under the table, whatever, whatever work was was what they could get. Yeah. Um, so I admire them greatly. Oh, wow. What a humble beginning. I love that entrepreneurial story. We're selling a ton of condos in, in Surrey uh, for the past year and a bit. And uh, I just love the immigrant story. Um and it's so similar, you know, different ethnicities, different reasons, but the journey is kind of the same. And there's this, this sort of common story of, uh, of it taking the parents, you know, working two jobs about seven years to be able to get into real estate and, and continuing and then kind of never looking back. And obviously these are real estate oriented people. That's why they're talking to me, but, but I really love it. Um, what was your first entrepreneurial effort yourself? Yeah, my first really good business I'm really proud about um, was uh, I'm, there'll be a theme of fishing throughout our conversation today. Yeah. I've loved fishing since I was a kid, just addicted the very first time I had a rod in my hand. Um, and so when I was about eight or 10 years old, I would hop on a bus with my fishing rod um, and, and bait and tackle and a bucket. And I would go up to like 49th and between Fraser and Maine, there's like this pond up there and I would catch all these little fish. They're called sunfish, pumpkin seed sunfish specifically. And I would catch a bunch of them and put them in a bucket and race downtown to the Main Street Aquarium and other pet shops and stuff like that with my bucket in tow and try and sell these fish. And I did that for uh, probably about a year and I've made sometimes like $50 on one batch of of a fish and, and this is like a young kid running around like you know no clue right how old were you um, like eight or ten years old you know wow. at that age i would jump on my bicycle with a fishing rod across my yeah. handlebars and a backpack yeah and ride on the highway to like como lake and coquitlam from east van like you know an hour an hour of the highway you know at that age uh yeah. and you know parents had no clue where we were told her um those are good times oh but yeah i was an entrepreneur from 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 a very early age always trying to figure out how can i make some money um, Hustle. you know, yeah. So 
So that was eight, 10 years old. And then what happened after that? So I started my first real business, I guess, when I was in university. Uh, it was uh, called Imagine Marketing Group. And we imported uh, laptop shells from abroad, from um, Taiwan specifically. Yeah. And we populated them and customized them with local parts. So we would uh, specify with the client how much memory, hard drive, CPU, you know, things like that, and populate them with like OEM parts and then sell them. Uh, so we, you know, we're in business for about a year. We sold mostly to like real estate agents, insurance, maybe people in sales typically. Back then, a customized laptop was not really around. Um, you'd buy a, a, a laptop, maybe like all black box inside. And we were um, buying these shells and trying to customize them. But we were like 20 years old, uh, didn't have enough money. We we're dumb, irresponsible. And like within a year's time, we shut down. We got sued because we didn't fulfill our requirements. The people were getting upset when we couldn't fix their stuff fast enough. We didn't have enough cash. And we were pretenders. Like we thought, it was, you know, we we're cool having a business, but we weren't really, put it this way, it wasn't what put food on the table for us or, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. And, uh, but it was a great learning curve. And, you know, after doing it, I realized I had two best friends in with me or very good friends with me yeah. and we went under and I lost my friends too. Oh, you know? no. Um, it's very sad yeah. because, and I said, you know what, I'm never gonna have partners again. Yeah. Uh, I'm also not going to go into something like with this attitude of like, yeah, this is, this is cool. I'm, you know, like I would do it because I was really going to build a business that would, that would, you know, take care of my family, not yeah. just what I thought it was. You know, yeah. What you see on TV, yeah. No pretending, yeah. No more pretending. Um, how did you lose your friends? Is it is it too much stress? Um, I, there was just a lot of blame, yeah, with one another. I don't think anyone was really at fault per se. Like I was going to school like half time still. Yeah. Uh, another another one of the guys had also a side business on their own in addition to that. So yeah. a little conflicting interests. And the one yeah. guy that was full time into it who was supposed to be selling, uh, just wasn't doing a great job of that. And then was kind of ducking responsibilities. So at the end of the day, we, it was the best. Um, but it's sad because we used to hang out a lot more before and totally. Yeah. And then what happened uh, after that? So, uh, want to talk fishing again? Yeah. <laughs> so, Always. you know, I, I, here I am in, in university and I never like, I, I failed out of first year UBC. I was in science, just got my ass handed to me, failed physics, failed chem, failed math, you know, like just, Brutal, right? And my, you know, my dad, my mom and dad are really good, very good um, students. And uh, I was just such a disappointment because they valued education a lot more than I did. And and in fact, in Taiwanese culture, like um, education is the highest level of class distinction, if you could call it that. Um, and uh, and I was just a huge failure. Then I went to Langara, almost failed at Langara. Yeah, you know, finally went, got to SFU. They gave me a, an olive branch, and I, I actually did okay there because I liked the courses I was taking. I was taking business then. Yeah, and I almost always worked full time or part time while I took courses, mostly at night school just to get done. It took me almost eight years to graduate. You know, so, <laughs> but I did graduate. Yeah, and um, and just weaving the fishing thing back in again, I got my first job at a university. Because, um, well, actually, when I graduated from university, I couldn't get a job. So I just decided to go fishing every day, like, you know, 150 days that year. And I was funded by a governor of Canada unemployment insurance. <laughs> so one and only time I ever went a pogey, and that was right after graduating because I couldn't find a job. And I was like, well, I want to do some more fishing. Really is because I didn't know what the hell I wanted to do. I was lost. Um, and, um, 
And so it helped me get clarity. Most of the time it's just escaping real, real life. Yeah. Right. And where were you fishing? Rivers or? Uh, rivers, lakes. So I lived on the banks of either the, the Vetter River in Chilliwack or the Chehalis up at Harrison. And I also did a lot of fishing in the interior lakes. Uh, we have an unbelievable bounty of fishing everywhere, but that's where I spent my time. And my girlfriend at the time would apply for jobs for me constantly, send my resume in, cover letter as if she as if she was me, and I get these interviews, super annoying. Yeah. And I, <laughs> but I always go to them, so I don't want to disappoint anybody. And I actually got hired, finally after like about I don't know eight months of this. Yeah. Uh, not that I didn't try. I always did kind of try, but I got hired. It was for the Great Little Box Company, first and only job I had at, univers at a university. And I started as a marketing coordinator, um, and I figured, you know, if I can differentiate boxes. I can do anything. And so six years later, I, I, um, I, well, I worked my way up. I was a VP of sales and marketing, but I helped um, acquire companies. I didn't even know what M&A was, but, you're doing but I bought companies uh, for my boss, Bob Maggie, who was an amazing mentor because he was really supportive, taught me a lot, but also just let me fumble around a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think it created pretty good value for yeah. them. And since then they've acquired like 20 or 30 companies, but I helped, I helped with the first few. And, uh, and when I was going to leave, well, before I left, I asked him, would you like me as a partner? I want to, I want to be a business guy like you and I'll be your partner. He's like, no, you need to go find your, you need to go do your own thing start your own business. And he helped me actually get going because when I was tight on cash, I could always work, I could always work on a pro rata daily rate and yeah. make more money helping, you know, um, helping him, helping him still yeah. afterwards. And I did that for about a year and I still kept going to staff Christmas parties and this and that for many years afterwards. And I was, you know, I was very fond memories of. How, how Bob and Great Little Boss Company helped me when I first got going. That's cool. Yeah. Is he still around? Yeah, yeah. I'm, um, the company's doing great. They, awesome. they are amazing, a people company, which I learned a lot about, you know, why people are so important um, from there. Yeah. And it, did you do Vega then after? So, yeah, I left there to start my business. And at the time, it was called Sequel Naturals. Yeah. And we started by selling a very obscure product called Colostrum, which is the pre-milk fluid produced by all female mammals prior to birth. Yeah. Good luck going to try to sell that today. Like, I don't really know how I did it, but I would sell this. I would like do, like I said, the infomercials we talked about earlier. How did like, you even know what that was or decide to build a business around that? This is how bad it is. So I didn't know anything about health, uh, but I wanted to be in this industry because when you sell boxes, you pay attention to what industries are growing and which are. So I want to be somewhere where there's tailwinds, right? Mm -hmm. So the two biggest areas were either natural health or the tech business. And I wasn't going to do tech again because I got, you know, annihilated last time around. And, and frankly, it's too capital intensive. Um, I had about a hundred grand saved up when I started Vega, but I read this book called Prescription for Natural Healing. It's like an 800 page, you know, four inch thick book. I would do like hundred pages a night. And like after a week, I was like, okay, out of all my reading, I think this is a product I'm going to do. Like literally that's how wow. ridiculous it was. And luckily, you know, when you're, when you're dumb and ignorant, you don't know, you just try stuff. And yeah, so I chose colostrum because it had so much science. Like actually if Objectively speaking, it's still probably the most studied and had the best science of anything with that. So then I'm like, okay, where am I going to get this from? And that's when I started doing some research on who made it and so forth. And I had to get it from a veterinarian supply in the U.S. Brought it in bulk and then had it made into uh, liquid, cream, capsules, tablets um, locally here yeah. um, using contract manufacturers. And that's what I started selling. Yeah. So... I want to make sure I understand what it is. It's the it's the precursor to breast milk. Is it yeah, it's like that, what is made for the baby's first meal before the baby's <laughs> born. It's made. So in the animal kingdom, colostrum is like liquid gold. 
in humans, it's a little bit less important, but for like a cow, yeah, it's vital, right? Like, you know, the cow feeds, gets up and starts like running a marathon, this little calf, right? Yeah. Um, so it's quite, you know, because they have to go right away. <laughs> is it right? important when you're Danger is there, you know? Did you learn it was important when explaining what it is to hold your hands in this particular position? <laughs> you know, understand. we could laugh about it because I just think back and I go, I couldn't have picked a harder thing to sell. Yeah. It's a and, test. you know, keep me a straight face sometimes talking to like, you know, it's just amazing that we, yeah. like, you know, I've, I've, I used to organize like a talk at a community center and get like, 10 or 15 local health food stores come out with like 50 people, feed them dinner and then sell them 10 grand worth of colostrum. And like, like we do that stuff. Yeah. And I would talk about it for two hours. Here's a guy who doesn't know anything about health, read a few books. Yeah. Um, and literally would sell this stuff. I actually think that it was purely passion and ignorance um, that made it successful. But you know what? There's really good science behind it. Like I was so convicted, like I couldn't ever sell something I didn't believe in. Yeah. And I came across this and, and chose it objectively out of looking at all the texts that I looked and, and decided that. So it's kind of a very, like I was very convicted. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I know what it is. Cause we, my wife and I adopted our kids, okay. which means bottle feeding and all that kind of stuff. And, and, uh, and so I, I heard that word a lot from my wife, the naturopathic doctor. Oh, nice. And, uh, we were into it. I think we owned part of a cow or something at one point in order to <laughs> legally get it or something. It wasn't easy. I remember yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. So how did the colostrum sales go? Um, so it's really funny. So we got at our, at our highest level of sales, we got to, you know, maybe a couple of hundred grand a year or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> in that, in that one product. Yeah. And I sold the business to a friend, um, 10 years later and was doing the same sales. Yeah. And now 15 years later, I think it's at 1.5 X that like, it is, it's funny yeah. just tr- tr- trekking along. It's yeah. a small brand, but yeah. beloved, um, effective. And it has this really good fans following. So, so you spent 10 years in that before Vega? No, not before, but along with we, yeah. I ended up selling that brand because as Vega grew, we realized we couldn't on one hand talk about plant-based and then still have that. So actually maybe not even 10 years, maybe we had the brand for about six or seven. I see. Once Vega got going, we pretty much had to, yeah. you know, be congruent. Yeah. And, uh, so, so we parted ways with, with our beloved starting brand, but mm-hmm. It went to a good friend. So, yeah. So was, uh, the first iteration of Vega, was it a product line that sort of seemed to have a lot of tailwind that you leaned into? Yeah. So how it all came about, I think we talked earlier about the the radio show. I used to buy remnant radio time on women's all talk radio, C-Fund specifically. Yeah. And I was doing an infomercial on maca, which is this root vegetable from Peru. That's really good for, um, um, a number of things, but libido and, uh, you know, Things like that. Yeah. Anyways, hormones and stuff. Yeah. And he was at his mom's house helping clean up the garage. And and this is Brendan Brazier, my co-founder and like um, formulator. And he's really the the product genius behind Vega. All, all credit goes to him. And uh, he heard about Maka, decided to try it, liked it. And then he reached out and said, hey, would you sponsor me? Because I love your product. Heard you about the radio. I'm like, like dude, I'm a one-man show. Um, can't sponsor anybody, but if you want some free product in exchange for a testimonial and maybe come on my next infomercial and tell me, tell people how much you like it, then I'll give you some product. Yeah. Uh, where do I send it? Yeah. It turns out he lives five minutes away. I'm in Blue Ridge. He's in Lynn Valley. We're both in the shore. I'm like, well, why don't you just come over? Yeah. And literally he comes over within like 15 minutes after that. And we spend six hours. It was like sunny when we started talking. It was dark when we went home. And within the first couple hours, inter- and I just interrogated him. Um, we decided we got to make a product based on your diet because he's, he's, he's like a world-class Ironman triathlete done every kind of 
experimentation on his body from a training perspective, from diet, you know, mental, everything. And he said, nothing improved performance better than diet. And the more plant-based he became, the more animal-based products he avoided, the stronger, fitter, faster he recovered, better sleep, all those great things. So my thinking was, well, if on this level of athlete, um, they could have that much benefit. How about for the rest of us, right? For energy, for recovery, for all those things. And so we're like, okay, got to make this product. And at the time, a lot of the ingredients that are common today didn't exist back then. We had to like beg people like to, can you make this for us? Can we use this? Can we make, and so pretty, pretty bad first product, um, healthy, but like it would like look like sticks and dirt and grass and, and taste worse than that. You had to chew it. Um, and, and it would just, you know, it was pretty bad. People yeah. pulled the nose, stomach it, but they'd feel good afterwards, right? Yeah. And so we just kept working on it to make it better and better. But that was about three years after we'd first started the, the Colossum product. And Vega was, so before the, before Vega, I was trying to build this company that was like a four-hour work week model, like Tim Ferriss, right? Like, okay, I'm going to work very little. I'm going to have tons of free time, raise my family, and make enough money to be happy. I never had visions of grandeur that I had to make a ton of money. Didn't really care about it. Just wanted to have freedom. But once we started selling Vega, even though initially there's a lot of like resistance from the retailers, this won't sell. There's not enough vegans out there. This is too expensive. Tastes like shit. Can I swear? Yeah. Okay. Perfect. So all these things are bad. Right. And uh, I'm like, Oh my gosh, like I didn't realize it's that negatively, but we just believed. And uh, you know, I'm like, ready need to write this book. We're going to tell everyone the story. They're going to get it. And the people did. So I, we saw it really, really pick up fast. And I'm like, Holy crap. I can't Tim Ferriss this. I actually need to really invest and build team and get this out faster because we're on to something really great. It didn't grow like Colostrum or Maca or Chlorella. It grew on another, another level. Like, you know, it's, it just was so, there was so much interest and in, this is early days in plant-based. Yeah. In fact, I like to say we coined that phrase plant-based because before that people said vegan supplements and I'm like, well, if you want to turn somebody off who's not vegan, say vegan. Yeah. Right. So we said, no, we're never going to say vegan. We're going to say plant-based because it's aspirational. Right. I mean, I can still eat animal products and become more plant based on a continuum basis. I'll be healthier if I consume more plants. So plant based was what we coined. We stuck to it all the way through for all the years. And and really, it became a how fast can I acquire talent to help us tell the story and, and broaden the message? Because so many people were already interested in it. And we just did a ton of education and yeah, sort of went from there. And uh um, when did you like, when did you know you had a, a winner in terms of like, it sounds like now it sounds like this is very early stage. And you're yeah, like, I'd say within the first year, Cam, we, we did about a million bucks in revenue in our first year. Yeah. Um, which doesn't sound like a lot, but you know, when you're, when you're bootstrapped and, 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 and a lot of it was, we couldn't even fulfill the interest we had and, and we had really, really strong like consumer support. You know, we talk about tribe, you got to build tribe and people have to like yeah. obviously adore your product. Well, we yeah. have that. Uh, on a different level than all the products I've done before. So that's kind of how I'm like, you know what? Like we got to go hard in this because um, I think that this has really big legs. And so it changed the whole strategy of, you know, how do I work the least, have the fewest people <laughs> yeah. throughout the window. I'm like, okay, we need to grow. Yeah. Um, luckily, um, you know, our margins are pretty good. We were very good at cash management, we're very scrappy. Uh, and we're able to, to get a lot of favors from people because they liked us mm -hmm. on terms able to pay fairly slowly on an agreed upon negotiated basis, collect quite fast on an agreed upon negotiated basis, turn a cash over, turn inventory over fast. Um, and with good margins, we grew with our own dollars up until, you know, about seven or eight years later, like we were doing 25 million before we raised a penny outside money. Wow. Yeah. 
and profitable. And what were the keys to your success? What I heard so far is like you entered a market with a tailwind, um, you know, high growth potential, um, inventory turnover, cash flow. What else? I bet there's something on the people side. Yeah. People are pretty much, I would say the number one sustainable competitive advantage. Yeah. Um, I would say we, we sell passion starting going back to those classroom days. Like why did I, where was able to fill a, a community center full of people and sell 10 grand worth of classroom in, in a couple hours of talking, it was just passion. Totally. And so, you know, our feeling was we needed to build a team of people that had that passion and could imbue that to others and want to, you know, as part of a movement or a mission, as opposed to just a job. So we hired mostly millennials, mostly women. Um, who are just really, I mean, we always said they bleed green. You know, Vega was like really, really high um, uh, importance in their lives and they wanted to share that as opposed to just a job. That was really key. And I think we just, we, you know, you can talk about perks and this and that. And yes, they matter, but that's actually not the main thing. Like people have to feel they have purpose. They make a difference. They want to come to work every day. They want to work with others that are really great at what they do so that, you know, like iron sharpens iron, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they want to feel like they make a difference. Um, and everyone loves winning. So we just like to win and just when you grow really fast and you're getting all the recognition that we were getting and the adoration of retailers, consumers, pro athletes, celebs, this and that, it just was really motivating. We put them all together under one roof together and it's like powerful. And even when we had, you know, we had a a hundred salespeople all across North America, all separated. They work with them where they live. We still built these cell networks together, like like a Terra cells that just would be <laughs> self sufficient on their own. Should mothership go down, like you know, yeah. like and, and each one had their own very cool subculture within the overall Vega culture, and and we just did a really amazing job of keeping everyone connected and and uh, inspired and motivated and informed and belonging. You know, so how did you keep them connected? Is such a relevant challenge for today. Yeah, I mean, like I said, the the, the terrace cell, like, that's how we kind of, we joked about it, but within each region, there'd be a regional manager that would own that group of salespeople, field marketing people, et cetera, that they worked from the field, never went into an office, but they'd have all these like cool get togethers. Um, we were always big on social. I, I'd gone on to social media, I'm an old guy, so I, I joined Instagram because our employees were like big on it and I was super active on it. And so we all would use, um, you know, how they communicate is how we communicated. Um, and then every month we'd have an all hands meeting. We'd pull the reps off the road, stay at home, be involved, be part of our video presentation and be fully engaged and immersed in it. We shared all the data and how people were doing, always had updates. It was just very inclusive because half our people were remote. We had about hundred people in headquarters and hundred people out in the field. But each one of those little cells might have a dozen, you know, 15 people managed by a regional regional manager that would have their own very tight family within that. So think of it as a bunch of tight 20 person families, plus the overall mothership of a couple hundred people together. So you once told me about uh, the, the tool they used to a quarterly goal setting process. Yeah. Do you mind sharing that with our listeners? I think they would. Like yeah. Um, so what's really important for high performance in, in our opinion is that people need to a be part of the setting of goals process and then they have to also be responsible for self-evaluation and where it differs from how their managers evaluate they need to have the ability to ne- negotiate or convince or discuss the variances so there's no question like the worst thing is when someone high performance 
truly honestly believes inside differently from how they're being evaluated. There's that, that, that disconnect ruins high-level people. They need to make sure they're congruent. So them being part of the goal setting, them helping evaluate themselves, which in a sense helps decide, decide how much they get paid because bonuses are, are linked. Bonuses are always linked. We're a big believer that you want to link uh, comp and performance uh, as long as they believe that it's fairly and properly evaluated, in which case they have to be you know, part of the setting and the evaluating process, right? Yeah. Uh, we do it quarterly because a year is too long to wait. You need to course correct and so forth. And then in addition to those quarterly goals, you have the monthly formal updates, the weekly one-to-ones. Like there's a lot of sub beneath yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, and these goals aren't like, you know, crazy BHAGs. They're like appropriate time-based goals that will have like sub points to it. So you can evaluate something that's not one or not done. Mm-hmm. It's not a one or a zero. Uh, and the more you get into it and you, it creates this great dialogue um, between manager and employee, we'll call it. Uh, and this sort of dual joint responsibility. Mm-hmm. And then the goals are always rolled up to the top and there's transparency in how that in how that works. So you kind of feel like, okay, I'm part of this sub goal for sales mm-hmm. or I'm part of this sub goal for operations excellence, you know? Mm-hmm. And this is everybody from reception to the guy on the shipping floor, um, you know, to the, to the VPs and yeah. whatever else. Yeah, it makes so much sense. It might sound familiar to these guys, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, you guys do that. You yeah. call them OKRs or rocks or yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So different terminology, same same thing, right? Yeah. It's in fact, I don't care. There's a lot of really great programs like that that are out there. Many of which are branded, um, but it's really how you live them that makes the difference. It's like values. You can put them on the wall, and everyone has these really cool values. But if you don't live them, yeah, I can tell within five minutes of going somewhere if people live their values or not, right? Yeah, you should be able to ask anybody, hey, what are your what are your core values? And they should be able. Yeah, at least, maybe not word for word, but spit them out, right? Yeah. If you can't do that, it's, that's, that's then it's just talk. Uh, totally. I, we have three because I once said 10. How do you remember 10, right? I couldn't. Somebody asked me once. I was so embarrassed. I couldn't remember. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to die. Yeah. Uh, so now we keep it to three, but nice. they are real because we talk about them every single Excellent. day already. Excellent. Today. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would say that extending that, like, you know, we would evaluate performance as much on, on, living and teaching core values as we would on the, the goals as well. Yeah. You know, and in fact, fit uh, with culture, which values are a huge part of, was more important than the experience you brought, um, you know, how smart you were, this, you know, whatever. That was the most important part. Yeah. When did you start planning to sell Vega? About five years before we did. Wow. And the pivotal moment was bringing outside money. So I'd already been thinking about it. So actually at one point, it was crazy. I, at one point I bought like a 40 acre plot of land in Pitt Meadows that was to build this 200,000 square foot warehouse off this Vega University. Like I was going to go all big on it. And here we are, you know, we're $20 million, $20 million company, but I was dreaming big, you know, we're going to have our own like campus and this and that. I'm going to run this forever, you know, and really, and I actually bought the property and did all the design drawings and we were going to build this thing. Cool. And I actually had this like change of heart that, you know what? No, I don't want to commit to this. Um, and, uh, and in that time frame decided, you know, I think I actually want to see if I can like always said, want to go from Genesis, like zero to hundred million dollars in revenue. Maybe I want to do that and sell the business. And so literally ended up somehow reneging on this deal, cost me a few bucks, but got out of this deal, went from owning my own warehouse to renting a, a an office. Um, 
brought in uh, um, an equity partner. And actually before I brought an equity partner, I actually brought in my key VPs. Um, like basically I brought in like five people that were really important, critical, I think, to the success of the business and said, hey, are you in, are you in on this vision too? Because before we go there, I want to make sure you're in because I, I, I don't want to be by myself celebrating or crying. Yeah, I want to do it with you guys, right? Yeah. And so we did that first and then brought in a, an equity partner, sold like a quarter of the business to them. And then uh, the cash they put in, most of it took off the table because <laughs> we, were, we were quite profitable already and didn't actually need the money, which is the best time to raise. Yeah. Um, but I needed the peace of mind that if this all went to shit, my family's okay. That's why I took money off the table to put into responsible things that I can't mess up. And then that allowed me to be way more aggressive again in building the business because I was getting a bit more conservative yeah. with three kids and and, and, and um, pretty high burn rate with, you know, independent school and all these things like that. I was like, holy shit, I, I need cool. to I need to make sure I, I you know, um, protect my, my my future. So yeah. and that allowed me to be really aggressive. And I'm like, OK, we don't need more money than that. That's enough to take care of the family. So now let's go guns a blazing. And literally after we raise money within the first year and a half or so we hired like a hundred salespeople from like all distributors and stuff to like selling like direct in the U S and everywhere, yeah. having all these salespeople and, and building out these big teams that, that, um, were able to really accelerate, um, our growth in retail. How did you raise equity that you didn't need? I'm surprised an investment company, uh, bank or whatever that was looking at you would, would wonder about you taking this money off the table. It's not staying in the business. It's the first time that they had ever seen, the majority of the money come off in secondaries. They don't usually do that. In fact, yeah. um, PE firms don't like it when founders take a lot of money off the table because they're worried that maybe the future may not be aligned in interests. Yeah. Um, but I just told them, I said, hey, look, uh, I'm doing this because I need to have security. I've become more conservative. I know what it's going to take for the next five years for us to reach our goals. This is what I need. And I can clearly show you they don't really need the money because I had a great line of credit that we weren't even using big line of credit we weren't using, uh, cash in the bank. So I know you need to, I know you need to put a certain amount of money to work for your fund. Um, but it won't happen unless they secondaries because I don't need that much money for the business. Like, you know, so, yeah. so I took majority of it off yeah. of the table. Um, and, um, and that allowed us to get going. Yeah. And I guess if that's what's happening with the money, their only reason to do it would be for their share of the upside of even accomplishing that goal. Yeah, I believe we gave them a 10x. Yeah. But even better, I believe we gave our employees about it or our those original people that I forced to invest, my my exec team and so forth, yeah. is 54 times on capital. No way. Yeah, I was uh, having lunch with Nick earlier and he was telling me that uh, two friends of his dad actually uh, were a couple of those people. Who's that? Uh, yeah, my dad used to work for uh, uh, Vate in Ontario. Yeah, and, and so John Craig, uh, John Craig, and I Al Lassen. Uh, yeah, well, I love John. I uh, just saw him a couple weeks ago. He's yeah, he's dear. He's dear. Yeah. So congratulations. I mean, does it feel like old news now? It's seven years ago, right? It, that you. Yeah, you know, I I much. can't believe how fast it's gone. Yeah, the time has like flown probably because I've been like back to school for the last six years. I feel like learning my face off in, in a new industry and you feel that I really didn't know much about. And frankly, I'm not really that good at from, um, um, like intuitively not very good at. Are you talking about Lyra? Yeah. 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 I, mean, I hate to downplay myself here, but I'm such an optimist that it doesn't make me the very best investor. Once oh, we're in there, I can get my hands dirty and feel like I can make a difference. But like, honestly, I, I'm, I come from the school of if I can, I should. 
Whereas the investor hat should be just because I can doesn't mean I should yeah. because you want to have lots of options. Um, so um, the great thing is I have a team around me of people that are really good at um, real disciplined <laughs> and they help keep me in line. We get to argue and, and debate whether we're going to do this or that. Yeah. And, and my vote's one of several voices and we're all very passionate about what we believe in and how we think about things. So it's really, it's really good because yeah. You know, we have really strong finance folks with like, you know, I'll call myself an operating guy or entrepreneur. Um, you get different voices that help make the best sort of uh, high touch, high tech or high data, high intuition type deals happen. Yeah. And those are their best ones. What did you learn from your experience being on the entrepreneur side of the table with your private equity company uh, that you thought, I want to be like them? Oh, I loved working with them. And to this day, like I'm a, I'm a mentor in their network. Uh, I'm an LP in the fund, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm friends with the partners to this day. So sometimes you hear, oh my gosh, I hate my P partners. They were terrible. This, yeah. I just love mine. Uh, and to this day we do deals together. And, um, so I only have good to say, but probably because we just hit every one of our numbers and never, never, you know, we always under promised over delivered and we communicate like crazy. Uh, and they were really good, high integrity people. And, and so are we. And so we get along great. Yeah. I think that there's a, there's good and bad in every story and it's never one side's fault. Yeah. Um, I would say as an entrepreneur, if you're complaining about your PE firm a lot, then maybe there's work to be done. Uh, Cause you can control some of that side, you know, don't just blame your, your financial partner They're, You know, they have their needs, but I think it's the working together that, that makes a difference. Um, and so we try and take that same um, attitude towards our companies. Um, and, uh, and we have the additional benefit of not having LPs. I just manage and, invest my own money and therefore don't have the time horizons, don't have the, you know, constraints of having to fit an investment portfolio strategy predetermined. We get to be a little bit more flexible and creative. No two deals are the same. So, you know, we have that benefit, but we try to learn from the best practices. They taught us a lot. Like, you know, when you buy and sell businesses and grow businesses for a living, like our, our partner did, um, there's a lot of like, there's a lot of, uh, of process and we picked up on a lot of that and we were able to take great notes and, and benefit from that process. Oh, no, we had to put your own spin on it for Lyra, yeah. your PE firm. So what's yeah. your niche or how do you differentiate yourselves? I would say that we have a founder first mentality. That's maybe a bit more unique in terms of that. Um, because it's my money and I've gone from garage to exit. I can sort of appreciate the whole journey. Um, and, I think that we support not just the founder from a business perspective, but also there's such a personal connection. Like you can't ever hide from your business. You don't get to turn off ever. We really get that. So, you know, we're not just finance. We're, we're hopefully smart and supportive and caring money. Um, I don't, I'd, I'd like to hope that our uh, founders would say that. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so that combined with what I said earlier around the flexibility of terms and, timing and um, and how the partnership is going to be organized we don't have a set formula that we have to follow that that gives a lot of a lot of um creative room um to find the best partnership with founders yeah and you've been doing that for seven years what have you yeah. learned in the process what's what's not worked out and what's working well, out well like i said just because you can doesn't mean you should <laughs> yeah. um and, uh, and you have to, you have to kind of find the right balance of how much you can get in the weeds 
versus staying a little more strategic because you can get overwhelmed so early on like it got so involved in everything and just what burnt was actually like almost burning out i was working more hours than i was before i sold vega because i was so like committed to every company and wanting to help and but what ended up happening is when you start taking on that responsibility you actually take a little bit of that accountability off of of uh of the management team and so we were almost sometimes doing the work and like whoa what are we doing so kind of learning where to jump in heavily where to back off you know how to be the parent that says no i'm not going to help you on this one this is this is you versus like okay you know what let me let me get in get in there with you and um and really when it comes down to it at the end of the day you can have the best business plan the best branding the best at the end of the day it's about people and our best bets are when we bet on the best people and the best people doesn't doesn't necessarily mean the smartest it can be um but it means the people that share your values that over communicate they run to you with issues and not away they don't hide stuff they don't have big egos they're like you and so then you can really really um cooperate you can really build together you can really just magic happens when you're dealing with people that you really gel with and it doesn't mean we want the same personalities or same backgrounds no it just means we have the same values and we come together and and work you know positively together without egos to get stuff done yeah you know and and i know it sounds kind of like fluffy but man like it makes such a big difference like uh, we can look at all the different businesses we're in and the most successful ones are typically run by the people that are um that share these values most you know? yeah it doesn't sound fluffy to me. I totally mm-hmm. leaning way in on what you're saying. And I think it's gold for young entrepreneurs yeah. to hear you say that. I mean, hey, I'd love to be able to say, oh, no, it's, it's these DDC metrics that matter or this or this pedigree or you know, should you hire more MBAs? I'm like, none of those things matter. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, um, I think that uh, uh, if, if this podcast is supposed to reach young young entrepreneurs and, yeah. and, and I know that's what you're passionate about, uh, Cam, it's like, you know what, like, under promise and over deliver, do what you say you're going to do, have the highest integrity and, and mean what you say. And I think that takes you such a long ways because even that first bar, yeah. that's our first core value. We always talk yeah. about the highest integrity. You'd be surprised how many people can't make that. Yeah. You know, and maybe it's because they don't want to disappoint or they want to say something bigger than it is, but bigger than what they really have. Or, or maybe they're afraid to admit they don't know something. So they make something up. All those things are killers. Right. Whereas if I don't know something, I'm just going to say, you know what? I don't know. Can you explain to me? I don't feel dumb because you know what? After you tell me, now I know. I don't have to yeah. pretend and then go, oh, missed that part. Yeah. Right? Like dumb is when you pretend and you don't learn it. <laughs> totally. You're doing a lot of good in the world. I mean, it seems to be a lot with SFU, the only school that didn't nearly flunk you out. I know. They actually, I, I always <laughs> joke around saying they took me when, when UBC kicked me out. And then when I wanted to go back to UBC, they said, we'll let you back in if you come back into the science faculty. I said, well, I failed at the science faculty. I can't go back to science. Put me in commerce. I'll this, you know, or, or arts. Nope. Yeah. You must come back to science. I'm like, forget it. That's if you took me as a as a as a reject, and uh, and they've been wonderful, wonderful to work with. Yeah. Um. And uh, and yeah, it's it, it's been really cool influencing folks at the post secondary level. Um. However, earlier is more important. Yeah. You know, and that's for how you know we talked a lot about power play and why it's so important to influence children as early as possible. I mean, not, not you're not going to take them in kindergarten. They have no idea what they're talking about, you know, but through grades, I, I would say as early as grade four and maybe the sweet spots, grade six, grade eight, um, sort of influencing an, a mindset. We call it the entrepreneurial mindset uh, is so critical. And I think it has the highest ROI. Um, you know, we spend 
time and dollars and resources at that age with the right curriculum, experiential learning, it can have really big impacts on that child's life going forward because a mindset you take with you everywhere you go, it's not a skill set. It's a mindset. That's what, that's what matters most. Mm. And I love it. Everyone that listens knows that we've talked about it on this podcast lots. Um, but at SFE, what is the Charles Chang Innovation Center? Yeah, so it's actually entrepreneurship and innovation. Uh, the center is like a physical location where a lot of our programs are housed, like Radius, for example. But more important than the space, because to me, it's just a space. I love that our name's on there. When I took my dad and mom there, they're very proud. Yeah. But that's just a space. What really matters is more about um, the work we're doing. And um, SFU is sort of, or we'll call the B school businesses most important uh, um, part to me, uh, are this, is a certificate program um, for entrepreneurship and innovation under our institute. Yeah. Um, and what we're trying to do is have a very multidisciplined approach to, um, to business. So most of our graduates of this certificate program are actually not in business. Yeah. They come from arts, engineering, uh, design, different places. Um, and so they'll get the best benefit, I think. Um, maybe I would look at it like maybe it's like a half MBA or kind of thing, uh, much more affordable and, 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 uh, and multidisciplinary. Yeah. Um, and we think that we're not trying to create more entrepreneurs through our institute. We're trying to create a more entrepreneurial mindset and capability and interest and acceptance and comfort uh, and awareness. Because when you think about it, if you take the entrepreneurial mindset um, to doctor, a dancer, an artist, an engineer, a teacher, that's going to improve and better their performance in whatever vocation they, they've chosen. And that's what's magic about it is, again, it's also about mindset. And we've done some studies on the young children that we talked about earlier. SFU did the study on, on power play students and mindset can be influenced in a very short amount of time and mindset you take with you everywhere. And so the same great work with doing the power play on mindset grades four through eight, we're trying to do the same thing at university level um, through our certificate program um, at SFU. And then of course, there's a whole bunch of other great programs uh, that SFU is involved in, uh, the BE School Business is involved in, and we try and just house all the entrepreneurial and innovation areas under our, under our institute. Cool. What else are you up to? You're doing a lot of good in the world. Um, yeah, I mean, um, it's part of the plan, right? Try and, yeah, try and, try and keep myself uh, uh, busy on a business front, but also, yeah, so giving back and you know, being involved in my kids. Yeah. Um, um, school on the board and things like that. That's and, cool. Yeah, and mentoring a lot of, a lot of young folks. So. Nice. And what's, uh, who who's come out of Lyra that's the most uh, successful or most well-known so far? Um, that's kind of saying, who's your favorite nah, uh, son or daughter? I tried to know? word it in a way where, <laughs> <laughs> I tried to word it in a way where it wouldn't sound like that. I did, I failed. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'll, I'll pick one to talk about because they're local here in Vancouver yeah. and I just adore them. Uh, and it comes back to like, you know, quality of people and so forth. And it's a company called Tentry. And uh, so I love them because they have an ESG bent to everything, very like authentic and, and, and real and transparent. Um, and uh, what's really cool is not only, I mean, they do sell apparel, but that's means to an end. Um, but they also are doing some amazing work in the, in, in, a, in the tech space right now around measuring, reporting, uh, auditing uh, on the impact uh, of trees, planting trees, both for Tentry and for a bunch of other companies that are doing this kind of thing. And we're going to spin that off into becoming like its own entity, which is going to do amazing good 
because um, it's going to audit and verify that trees are actually planted like in the field oh. where it happens in third world countries in in crazy places and uh as far as we know we're kind of the leader in doing this and uh and we're partnering with some of the biggest companies to, to bring this to life so really impressed at how they've been able to to grow not just the apparel side but also this side so that's uh, so cool i'm a big fan i own like maybe 15 pieces nice yeah, awesome that's awesome of course Cam, you're good. You got to you gotta own some of this stuff. I think so. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to wear a shirt, a sweatshirt or whatever, like why not own one that, you know, caused 10 trees get planted? Love it. And it's still cool. Yeah. It makes you feel better when you're wearing it. Absolutely. Good, good, good. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, man. I know you're uh, busy. We got to talk about that other thing you don't want to talk about on air. So we better wrap this up pretty quickly. <laughs> All <laughs> thanks, right. Thanks for coming. Man. Hey, man. Great. Let's do it Take care. Thanks. thanks. Okay, bye.